Hello and welcome to the On-Call Consults in Less Than 10 Minute series on ENT in a Nutshell, a complement to Headmere's online survival guide. I'm your host, Will Dattar, and today we are joined by Dr. Scott Bevins, a board-certified facial plastic surgeon. In this episode, we will cover zygomatical maxillary complex fractures. Let's jump right in. Zygomatical maxillary fractures, also known as ZMC, ZMOC, tetrapod, or tripod fractures, are typically described by the articulations involved, with acknowledgement of the presence or absence of an orbital fracture component. The zygoma has five points of articulation, including the zygomatical frontal, zygomatical sphenoid, zygomatical temporal sutures, as well as the zygomatical maxillary suture at the zygomatical maxillary buttress, and the zygomatical maxillary suture at the inferior orbital rim. The zygoma's contribution to multiple vectors of projection in the midface and five points of articulation make achieving proper fracture reduction challenging. The zygoma has a propensity for rotational displacement, and proper reduction and stabilization must be achieved to reestablish anterior-posterior projection, vertical height, and transverse width of the face. Orbital fracture components, or concomitant fractures, require additional management considerations, which are covered in greater depth in an orbital fracture episode. So, Dr. Bevins, can you first describe some potentially associated injuries or sequelae of ZMC fractures to be aware of when seeing these consults? Yes. We're reminded that it takes a great deal of force to fracture the zygoma, so concomitant maxillofacial, cranial, or even spine fractures can occur. As always, we want to be on the lookout for facial nerve injuries. And if not addressed appropriately, these patients can have long-term facial deformity, multiple intraorbital sequelae, including diplopia or vision loss, Orbital compartment syndrome, even from retrobulbar hematoma, is not unheard of. Trismus secondary to impingement of the temporalis or coronoid process can also be a long-term sequela. And what is some history that we should take? Ask about the mechanism and timing of injury, any loss of consciousness, or a history suggestive of syncope or seizure, as this results in additional consultations. Ask about facial nerve paralysis, including timing if present. As for all patients, a past medical history, including medications, allergies, prior surgeries, is applicable. And timing of last meals is important for those that are operative candidates. And what are the supplies that you would recommend bringing to these consults? Appropriate PPE here includes a mask, eye protection, gloves, and maybe a gown. You want to have an otoscope light, both for checking in the ear canals, but also doing an ocular exam, which will include pupillary reflexes in these patients. Have a Snell and eye chart for visual acuity, and then take a headlight and tongue depressor to retract the cheeks and perform a thorough intraoral examination and document occlusion. A nasal speculum is helpful for your intranasal exam, and some cotton swabs may also be helpful both to assess for septal hematoma and generally to clean out uh, likely epistaxis. And what physical exam do you recommend for these patients? For all trauma patients, the primary and secondary survey need to be addressed as soon as the patient is triaged. We also need to make sure that we perform a complete head and neck physical examination when we arrive. And we're going to pay special attention in these patients to their facial width and projection. Also look for hematomas. Mid-phase trauma can result in retrobulbar hematoma, septal hematoma, or even palatal hematomas, which can be expanding. Failure to recognize a retrobulbar hematoma can result in blindness, and a palatal hematoma can cause airway obstruction. Obviously, a septal hematoma can eventually result in a saddle nose deformity through ischemic necrosis of septal cartilage. In these patients, we're going to look for concomitant orbital injuries, given the zygoma's anatomic contribution to the orbital floor, inferior rim, and lateral orbit. So assess the globe position, whether or not there's anophthalmus or hypoglobus. Assess visual acuity and extraocular motility. 
And then we're going to look at pupillary reflexes. Remember here to check for that relative afferent pupillary defect or the Marcus Gunn pupil. You'll recall this is when a conceptual light reflex is present in the effective, affected eye, although the pupillary light reflex is absent if the light is shown directly on the effective eye. A Marcus Gunn pupil is going to result from injury to the optic nerve or retina and warrants ophthalmology consultation. We also want to assess intraocular pressure with gentle palpation. Be sure not to apply a great deal of pressure, particularly if there's any concern for an open globe. Zygomatic arch fractures can result in mechanical interference of the mandibular coronoid process, which will prevent full mouth opening. This mechanical interference is typically the result of a displaced arch fragment, which is impinging on the temporalis muscle as it attaches to the mandibular coronoid process. And so to assess for this, we're going to check for reduced maximal interocclusal distance, or MIO. The normal MIO is about 40 millimeters or greater. And remember that there's two phases of joint motion. So there's rotation of the mandibular condyle and then translation of the condyle anteriorly. A mechanical interference that's caused by a zygomatic arch fracture will usually result in MIO reduction um, to 25 millimeters or less. So the condyle rotation, that first phase is preserved. So they'll still have 20 millimeters of opening or so, but it's that second phase, the condylar translation, which is initiated by the masticatory muscles like the temporalis, which has the potential to be disrupted by mechanical interference. If we do see any evidence of hypomobility, we want to further characterize it as a hard stop, meaning true hard tissue mechanical interference um, or hypomobility that's secondary to splinting from pain. We also want to visu visually assess and palpate the zygomatic arch for depression, pain, or a bony step off here. And what are the imaging findings that we should be looking at? So here again, a CT max face with fine cuts and 3D recons is our imaging of choice. And we're going to want to look at all the fracture sites and be able to describe them. So the common sites, again, are that zygomaticofrontal suture at the lateral orbital rim, the inferior orbital rim and floor, the zygomaticomaxillary buttress extending down towards the palate, and the zygomatic arch posteriorly the zygomaticosphenoid location. That tetrapod fracture pattern can allow for rotation of the zygoma, which is common, and will increase the orbital volume, um, causing potential for anophthalmus and hypoglobus, as well as uh, decreasing facial width and decreasing cheek projection. There is a classification system which you can be aware of called the Zing classification. It's less commonly used to describe than these descriptive uh, um, fracture locations. And can you describe how you think about the surgical versus non-surgical management of these patients? Generally speaking, we want to address any deficits in form and or function. So for patients with non-displaced fractures, there's no impairment in either form or function. Conservative management is appropriate. That means patients are essentially being placed on a no-to diet and sinus precautions. But if fracture displacement leads to either changes in orbital volume or reduced facial width or projection or trismus with that hard stop, then we should attempt reduction. For an isolated zygomatic arch fracture, that can be performed both through an open or closed approach or even percutaneous technique. But for most ZMC fractures that are displaced and requiring surgical management, we're going to use multiple incisions, incisions that allow visualization of all these suture sites and fracture lines. Adequate reduction of that mid-phase fracture will allow for earlier return to pre-more to premorbid chewing function, as well as restoration of the anterior, posterior, transverse facial dimensions and restoration of that orbital volume as well. Uh, to do that, most surgeons will stabilize these fractures with at least two plates, often one on the zygomatical frontal suture, which is accessed easily through a lateral bluff incision, 
um, and through that zygomatical maxillary buttress fixation in a, using a gingival buccal sulcus incision. It's not uncommon to put a third plate, a third point of fixation on the inferior orbital rim, particularly if the orbital floor needs to be addressed concomitantly. Um, these are fractures where intraoperative imaging or navigation can be really useful. And what are some discharge recommendations and follow-up that you give these patients? So all of these folks go home with sinus precautions for two to four weeks to prevent air emphysema. And so we tell them, avoid blowing your nose or sneezing uh, against uh, closed nostrils. For displaced EMC fractures, um, we are going to either operate proximally for those patients or follow them up within a week anticipating the need for ORAF. And generally, we're going to recommend no chew or liquid or full liquid diet um, to avoid transmission of bite forces across these potentially unstable fracture lines. So thanks, Dr. Bevins. Uh, that concludes our episode on ZMC fractures. Thanks for listening.